We're going to look this morning at uh, the faith of Noah. Faith of Noah. We've got plenty of water in there to remind you of the things that Noah's on about. You know, the world doesn't know a great deal about the Bible, but just about everybody knows about Noah's Ark. Even those who have never read a Bible have heard about Noah's Ark. And there are jokes, there are cartoons, there's movies about the search for the Ark. There's jewellery, there's toys, there's even nursery room wallpaper. All kinds of things with a Noah's Ark um, theme. And if you're in Kentucky in the US of A, you can visit a life-sized replica Ark been built over there, you can go across, pay your monies, go and have a look, and there's the inside of, of the ark, give you a little bit of a look about what it's like. And uh, of course with the ark comes a flood, and, and over the history of uh, the world there's been many flood stories. In fact, they seem to be global, like all over the world, documented in history and legend in just about every region on the earth. And old world missionaries report going to these remote isolated tribes who, and finding they've already got a legend there about the flood. And it's very similar to the biblical account. So there's even a rumour there's an ark on Lake Brown a while back. <laughs> the Lynx uh, magazine, the parish magazine in the USA, had a humorous little article about Noah in it. It said, everything I need to know about life, I learned from Noah's ark. Firstly, don't miss the boat. Secondly, plan ahead. It wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. And then, what about this? They said, stay fit. When you're 600 years old, someone might ask you to do something really big. <laughs> don't listen to the critics, just get the job done. Oh, what about, for safety's sake, travel in pairs. And remember, the ark was built by, the ark was built by amateurs. Titanic was built by professionals. So no matter the storm, when you're with God, there's always a rainbow waiting. So, before we look at this story, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Lord, uh, we pause this, in this moment as we think about Noah and the ark and the flood covering the whole world. Pray that you'd open our eyes and our ears to see what we need to hear and see and to understand. And uh, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, as you read through the Bible, there's a, a storyline going all the way through. And it's basically a storyline about the history of salvation. And it's got the progression of things that God has done in order to save the humans that he made from the results of their messing it up. And at this point in the story with Noah, Mankind is at a very deep low point. Genesis chapter 6, this is where mostly we'll be this morning. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. God was so disappointed in his creation that he said in Verse 7, so the Lord says, Oh dear, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created. And he was determined to do 
what so many of us would just love to do, which is completely eradicate evil from all creation. And if you ever wondered what it would look like to eradicate evil from all creation, uh, if God did that, well, this is what it looks like. It's the story of his first attempt to do that, and he decided he would have a flood over the whole world. Fortunately, because at the moment we're in that boat that's just gone over the waterfall, fortunately for the survival of us, there was one man who caught God's attention in the midst of dreadful iniquity, so bad that fallen angels were interacting directly with people, the sons of God were taking beautiful women for their wives, and that's just saying they were really seriously into occultic practices. In the midst of that, we have verse 8, but Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Only one man and his family in the whole world. How deeply sad for God that virtually every person that he's brought to life and whose life is actually sustaining because in him we live and move and have our being, every single one apart from Noah is so far gone that God could not bring himself to save them. And so verse 13, so God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them and I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. And so, make for yourself an ark of cypress wood. And Noah, God's only good guy, demonstrated how worthy a good guy he was by obediently building a gigantic floating, and the Hebrew word is, for ark is literally just a box gigantic floating box over the next 100 years, 120 years, filled it with food, filled it with animals and family until on verse 11 of chapter 7, in the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth. Notice that little thing. Where did the water come from? The springs of the great deep burst forth. And the floodgates of heaven were opened and the rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And there's Noah. We're going to look at a little bit of the evidence for this flood later on. But first, Noah, his character. What sort of a guy is he? What do the New Testament writers say about him? We have to take a trip to Hebrews chapter 11 to see his first two words, very important for Noah, by faith. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, that's reverence, he built the ark to save his family. And by his faith, by his faith he condemned the world. And he became the heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Hmm, faith. little story about faith. It's in New York. It's in the Harlem district. And there's a blind girl. She's on the fourth floor window and the house is on fire. And the firemen were desperate because they couldn't get their ladder truck in to get this, this uh, up to this girl who's up there. 
They've got a net below, but they couldn't get her to jump into the net because she couldn't see. She didn't know there was a net there. What are they going to do? Finally, her dad turns up, gives him the bullhorn, he shouts out and says, Jump! She heard her father's voice. She obeyed. She jumped. And she was so relaxed, she didn't break a bone, she didn't strain a muscle because she trusted her father completely. When she heard her father's voice, she did what he said to do and trusted him to help. And that's what Noah did. He heard his father's voice. He heard, and he jumped. And he spent 120 years following a simple instruction. And when he did this, he was also alone in the world, which is like many of us find ourselves alone in places in the world. But he persevered. And you know what? He persevered in preaching as well. Although the world around about him couldn't understand what he was saying, didn't know what he was about, disagreed with him, he kept on preaching. And Hebrews 11 verse 7 says that the Hebrew writer says he warned of things not yet seen. Don't you feel a bit like that <clears throat> with people around about you? You want to tell them about things that they don't understand, that they haven't seen, that they might not understand. But he still preached. And in particular, he told them rain's coming. But rain hadn't been seen on the earth to this point. There was no record of rain up to this point in history. Genesis chapter 2 verses 5 and 6 says, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not sent rain on the earth. And there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And you could possibly imagine Noah talking to God and saying, Lord, rain? What, what's rain? And what do you mean by a flood? And what's this ark, this box, do you want me to build? And how's that going to save us from the flood? And think about this. Lord, what do you mean you're going to kill off all the rest of my friends and relatives? Maybe he wasn't too sad about losing the mother-in-law, but there had to be some other people he liked, and he couldn't imagine God was going to kill them off. But... In spite of whatever questions he might have had, he was obedient to God. And the last verse in chapter 6 tells us that Noah did all that God commanded him. Not only did he build the ark, but he was the first bivocational pastor. Peter calls him a preacher of righteousness. In chap chapter 2 of Second Peter and verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. And it's the first time in the Bible that this word righteous comes up. And he's obviously considered righteous. Doesn't mean he was sinless. Well, that doesn't mean that he was righteous. The author of Hebrews helps us understand what makes someone righteous. In Hebrews 11 verse 7, by faith 
Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built the ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Nothing to indicate that he was righteous by his works, by, because he built the ark. Noah was considered to be righteous the same way that each of us this morning are considered to be righteous by faith. Noah found favour with the Lord by his faith. God saves people because, of his, because he's gracious through their faith in him. So that even though Noah had never seen rain or a flood, he believed God and he demonstrated that faith by being obedient to do everything that God had commanded him. Obviously at this point, Noah didn't know about Jesus, he didn't know about the cross, he didn't know about the resurrection. But he did believe what God had revealed to him and he entered into a relationship with God in which God imputed his righteousness to Noah because of he had faith, he had trust. So, friends, the golden prize here is faith. Learn from Noah if you want to find favour with God, because Noah found favour with God. So let's look at a bit of evidence which hopefully will bolster our faith, and I'm sort of aware that you start to get into the whole scientific evidence for the flood and the creation science ideas that we could be here three or four weeks. So we're not going to be here for long. We're just going to have a bit of a dabble at a few things. And if this interests you, and there are some people here who really know lots about this, then uh, go looking. It's freely available. The Institute for Creation Research is a really good website, place to go to. So, but as you do, we've got to talk about something called presuppositions. Presuppositions. This is your prejudices. It, they have an enormous role in your capacity to let the evidence speak for itself. You know, there's none so blind as those who think they can see. And we have an adversary who roams about like a roaring lion and seeks whom he made us devour, tries to create blindness to the truth. So we've got those things in there. So when we hear what the secular scientists say, when they say they have objective truth, it's not really the case. They're really a bit like a priesthood. You know, the job of the priest is to guard the body of knowledge, the information which you hold as your truth, collection of beliefs which you have chosen as agreeable to your worldview. And the scientific community is a bit like that. They're not open to consider objectively anything which challenges their core beliefs because their core beliefs influence, that's their presuppositions, influence how they look at information. And the longer scientific community are passionately devoted to their theories and secular education has been passing on their beliefs influenced by these teachings for a long time now. And people who don't want to bow the knee to God who created the heavens and the earth, they've been scheming, they've been dreaming long time to muddy the waters of objective and truthful investigation. So if you've never questioned what your science teachers have told you about evolution, May I encourage you to consider that what is called scientific truth actually involves a great deal of scientific imagination. 
and it's just a context. Be aware. Everyone starts, you can only see from where you are, but you need to uh, evaluate where are you coming from. Here's one que genuine question. How are you going to find enough water to cover the entire globe? That's a good question, isn't it? That's an enormous amount of water. Well, before the flood, we know from the scriptures, there was water above and there was water below. We go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 6, and God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and he separated the water under the vault from the water above the vault, and it was so. And God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And there was underground water, as we read a little bit earlier. Genesis 2 verse 5, Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth, and they watered the whole surface of the ground. Now, we know what bore water is. Before the flood, there must have been heaps more underground. Both rain and underground water were released over 40 days and nights to cover the whole earth. And we, we deduce from the, the scriptures that before there was rain on the earth, before there was rain, it was probably surrounded by a dome of water vapor, water vapor laden air, which gave pretty well the whole world a consistent climate. For example, we found well-preserved mammoth fossils in Siberia, where it shouldn't, they shouldn't be, they're more tropically oriented. So to produce a flood, God would have disrupted that dome, the vault above, to release vast amounts of water, and uh, so climate would, work, would have worked differently then to what it does now. And at the same time, you've got vast seismic activity occurred in order to release underground water and move around continents and mountains. Just one article from the website of the Institute for Creation Research. I'm going to give you some stuff from there. The article was, Genesis Flood Insights More Relevant Today Than Ever. And it referred back to something done in 1960. Oh, not quite there yet. There are some Genesis floods that's insights that science has clearly validated. So the first thing in that article it talks about is catastrophic sedimentary deposits. And you can see sediments in, in rock there. And uh, they said, well, there's an agreement between this idea of a worldwide flood and the things that we've seen as we look at the Earth's surface. For example, almost all of the sedimentary rocks of the Earth have been laid down by moving waters, which is a good legitimate reason to consider floods probably did that. Most mountains and continents are comprised of sedimentary mudstones of some sort. And when that original article was written, the geologists at that time believed that certain mudstones could, the only way you could form them was by slowly building up the sediments in the bottom of a calm and a shallow water body and then in 1980, we had the Mount St. Helens volcanic eruption. And they found mudstones formed during that time. A paper in the 
a paper said that mudstones can be deposited under more energetic conditions than widely assumed. And so we have to reappraise many of our geological records. So that's catastrophic sedimentary deposits, rapid mountain uplift. So you know underneath the earth, and you can see that there are different plates below mountains. They call them tectonic plates. And these have adjusted. They form deep ocean basins and troughs. So there's bits of the world are connected bigger than just the continents. The continents are just the top part of it. And you can see they join in various places, and many of them join right in the middle of an ocean there. And secular geologists who choose to ignore implications that there might have been a flood, they say that slow continental plate movements lifted the mountains to great heights. But if you think they have, mountains have to be formed slowly, you've got a problem because erosion by wind, water, gravity, that happens faster than mountains could have built up. So how could that happen? Well, it seems there was actually a tremendous movement of many of these plates rapidly pushing up the land in a catastrophic way to make the mountains. And then they probably were eroded by the fact that all the flood water has to then run off them. If it happened slowly, the mountains would have just all eroded before they got up there. Recent mountain uplift. Well, they say that's probably, it's recent. Conventionally, they say there's a two to five million year time span for all the mountains to rise. But shouldn't, if that's the case, shouldn't they be rising in different places over those periods of time? The guys who wrote that article said that most of the present mountain ranges of the world are believed to have been uplifted on the basis of fossil evidence, they say, during the Pleistocene, Pleistocene or the late Pliocene era, which is basically after the flood. And they found that even granite has been found to form quickly from magna. magma. A 2000 study in the journal Nature said, provided flow is continuous, mechanical considerations suggest that, far from being geologically sluggish, Granite magmatism is a rapid dynamic process operating at timescales less than 100,000 years, no matter what's going on with the tectonic thing. So anyway, there's a lot of gumbo to say mountains actually probably happened very recently and very quickly. What about seafloor formation? Seafloor studies from the last few decades show that today's ocean floor, all of it, has formed via the seafloor spreading since roughly halfway through the flood. Wickham and Morris suggested ocean basins were deepened after the flood. So you can s it comes down to what happens when you've got, see the red bit at the middle? When that comes up, magna is at a, so hot, because the Earth's center is molten, it is so hot that it speeds up processes like a billion times. And of course it goes up, forces all the plates aside, mountains get forced up, trenches are created, 
and that's somewhere for the water to go after the flood. It means that once the Earth's crust was broken at the start of the flood, this hot mantle material, that's the magma, the lava, forms new ocean basins, makes all the plates move. Funny which is a bit easier for me to understand is the living fossils bit. Living, no, I don't know any living fossils. <laughs> uh, so what it is is that supposedly there are ancient things passed away. We find fossils of them and they're ancient and they're no longer around. So it proves that we've been here for millions of years. And yet there's a fossil and they're alive. Uh, trilobite, or trilobite. No difference between the fossil and the live one. And they openly challenge the vast ages that the evolutionary guys say by showing that none of evolution's expected changes in the body of these creatures happen. It's been ages and ages. Have they trained? Have they, have they evolved? No, they haven't. The fossil and the living creature look the same. For example, evolutionists were confident that grasses evolved millions of years after the dinosaurs until they found dinosaur poo which had grass in it. <laughs> and in August 1994 there was a dinosaur age tree called the Wallemi pine discovered alive and well in Australia. Clearly the botanical find of the century. Well, there's it's no difference between fossilized version or living version. Then there's many more living fossils in the animal world, stubbornly, virtually the same as their ancient predecessors after the unimaginable millions of years demanded by evolution. The picture there is of um, in the same fossil area, you've got an extinct uh, bird, an Archaeopteryx, and you've got sea stars and grasshoppers in the same level. And one more, you've got the Jurassic, sh the Jurassic shrimp and the shovel-nosed shark and the ray. Some things supposed to be extinct because they've been fossilized, but now they're still alive. Evolution means change, but living fossils who haven't changed, I'll leave you to make the conclusion there. So to sum up what the article says, that living fossils, the rapid alteration of the seafloor, rapid and recent uplift of all the world's mountains and the catastrophic deposition of sedimentary rocks have all been confirmed by science. It's by the grace of God that Christian scientists have been able to sift through the maze of scientific mumbo-jumbo put, put about by unbelieving scientists and come up with credible answers agreeing with the Bible. And there's much encouraging and faith-building information in this area. If it interests you, go looking and uh, be willing to look at the evidence for what it is. Despite that, many of us really feel 
because these days are still like the times of Noah, don't we? Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. But God is looking for people on whom he can bestow favour. He is looking for people who are righteous through their faith in him. He is looking for people to follow Noah's example, to heed the warnings he tells them, to take up the tasks he's called them to do, and to be bivocational preachers of righteousness, preaching to whoever will listen as they go about their God-directed life. He's looking for people willing to put down their own aspirations, their own goals and desires, and listen for the quiet voice of God. People willing to spend time in prayer, not asking, 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 but listening for the truth that God will confirm to you through his written word, through the Bible. And the call this morning is, be a Noah. Find favour with God. Let's pray. We hear the warning for the people around about us, Lord. We hear that the prize is knowing you and listening to you. Even if every other single person in the whole world, that's what Noah had, every other single person in the whole world wasn't listening. But he listened, he obeyed. I pray, Lord, that we will ramp up our faith, that we will trust and entrust ourselves to you and that we will be Noah's for the glory of our great and wondrous God.